Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything from food, lifestyle, and medicine to nature, culture, and politics. There's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner, certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine. And we have a really phenomenal guest here today. Hiba Jamil is a certified nutritionist, visual artist, analytical researcher, and program advocate with extensive experience blending analytical skills, understanding of nutrition and food policy, and a passion for improving people's lives through healthy eating. She is adept at customizing programs and strategies for each client and audience to transform their experiences while also aligning best practices with their unique lifestyles and needs. She graduated with a BS in biochem and cell biology from the University of California, San Diego, and has her master's in nutrition science and policy from Tufts University. In her art career, Hibba has received numerous awards for her civic art response to current political situations and has been written about in multiple newspapers, including our local paper, The Seattle Stranger. Hibba also worked closely with the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture in a two-year community art therapy project called Psychosomatic. Her interactive show took place and was sponsored by Seattle Center. Hibba takes pride in her horizontal thinking and creativity to problem solving alongside with her research skills. She is bilingual in English and Arabic and committed to championing diversity and inclusion. Hibba, welcome. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much. I'm grateful to be on your podcast. <laughs> well, you have such, I mean, the work you're doing, first of all, is so incredible and balanced and broad and yet still so focused on kind of some very specific themes that we'll talk about. But tell us like how you came to this. Tell us a little bit about yourself because you particularly have a really fascinating life story. Can you just tell us about yourself? Well, um, I think my fascination with uh, nutrition and health and art started at a very young age. Um, well, with art, it started since I was three. You could mm -hmm. say I was pretty much born with the innate need uh, for a creative outlet and constantly drawing. And I just was happy to take my time in honing and making a drawing look better. So that's for art. It started from a very young age. And then for nutrition and health in particular, it was more health. And then it was kind of like, well, the basic of health is what you put in your body and how you live your lifestyle. And I would say the trigger for that started when my grand maternal grandfather had a stroke and it happened in front of me. Oh my God. It was, uh, yeah, I was yes. about eight years old. It was around the Gulf War, right after it, actually. Um, mm -hmm. And he had a stroke and he had another stroke and he was, you know, he didn't take care of his health and mm. he was a chain smoker and he was diabetic. Um, he wasn't overweight or anything. He was just under a lot of stress. The political situation was very bad at the time. And my uncle went missing. He worked for the government at the time. In Iraq. That's another, you were, you were, in Iraq, yeah. In <laughs> Iraq, very, you were born and raised in Iraq. I was yes. born and raised in, well, I was born and raised there until I was 11. And then we left Baghdad when I was 11. And I've never been back since. I'm 39 now, <laughs> so it's wow. been ages. Um, but that was that little bit that kind of ignited the question, well, why? You know, why yeah. did he get a stroke? What does a stroke mean? Why did he stop talking? Why is he paralyzed? Because he continued, you know, he couldn't, his speech was um, shot from the stroke, so he couldn't talk. He could only say a few letters and we would make out what he means by it. And he, half of his body was paralyzed. And so 
I loved my grandfather so much. And so that was such a big deal for me. And I kept on asking the question, why? And it was just kind of in the back of my head. And so anytime there's a television program that had a doctor on, or if I come across a magazine that had an article about health or nutrition, I would just read it. Mm. I would read it and I would be interested to learn like, okay, when we eat the food, how do we actually use it for energy? Like what happens? How do you just ingest the food and then it becomes energy? And then throughout the years growing up, that led me to, okay, well, you need to study biochemistry (laughs) to know how this happens. And so it was really a microscopic interest on how things, like I wanted to zoom out and then zoom in on a cellular and, you know, a, a chemical and atomic level on how things happen. And studying biochemistry and cell biology allowed me you know, I was, I'm so grateful. Mm-hmm. It allowed me to do that zoom in and go at a microscopic level and even an, on an electron level to see how things actually happen. So when I talk about something, I know why it's happening, how it's broken down, etc. And then I went on after that, I did my master's in nutrition science and it was just more, you know, I think this was fueling my innate belief that what we eat really factors in and how we do our health. Okay, it's not 100% just what, we, what you eat. There are environmental and lifestyle factors. But I was interested mostly in food because I grew up in a culture and a household that values food so much. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, even back when I was little, it was always, you know, the vegetables, the herbs, the fruits. And then, you know, it was interesting to see, you know, a big spread of food change as we moved from Iraq, as we were immigrating and we, we're in a transient between a few countries before we finally made it to the U.S. and how this uh, food spread changed when we came to the U.S. and how the can you, culture affects that. Yeah. Can you paint us that picture of that table? Can you tell us like what some of the foods and the fruits or the spices? So, exactly. So I grew up in my uh, grandparents' house. So I grew up with my uncles and aunts and it was a big household. And so when we came together to eat breakfast and we came together to eat lunch and dinner. That was the norm is that the Mm -hmm. whole family and it's a big family. They have Mm -hmm. to all gather around the table and eat. And usually, you know, it was very normal. Like, you know, we had a lot of herbs in our garden. We grew Mm -hmm. tomatoes. Uh, Our, my grandparents' house, their garden was full of orange and lemon and bitter orange trees Mm -hmm. and different kind of berries, pomegranate, grapes. So I grew up literally just picking something and washing it and eating it, or sometimes mm-hmm. not washing it, just eating it. <laughs> uh-huh. And, you know, climbing the mulberry tree and falling off it and eating them ripe from the tree. So all of that, it was in our house um, and that was on the table. Mm-hmm. So we would, you know, we would have a lot of fruits daily and our, you know, spread was filled with lots of herbs, fresh herbs, like parsley, basil, uh, cilantro, chives, they just Mm. wash them and they put them and then they make a salad. And then they have the stews and the rice and the bread, all fresh, all homemade. So every Friday we ate fish. They would bring really big grilled fish that were river fish from the Tigris or the Euphrates. I can't remember, but they would bring it from outside. This is something, it's a treat. It's a special thing. And they bring this and then we'd have it with lots of vegetables and side dishes like rice or Borgol, it's like cracked wheat. Um, we ate a lot of beans, bean stews. Um, I think we ate stews very regularly and things, we, we make a dish called dolma. That was also a special treat, but it's not 
a regular dolma. It's a Iraqi dolma. It's a big, big, big pot. And it, it's mm. stuffed onions and tomatoes and potatoes and Swiss chard. And it's, a different, it's a different kind of breed of dolma. Very delicious, intensive work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, my mom, my grandma, my aunts, even my grandfather before he was ill and my uncles, I feel like everybody took part in mm. how we ate. You know, mm-hmm. this person would do the grocery shopping and then they kind of grocery shopped every day. Mm-hmm. So every day, every morning they wake up, what are we going to eat today? So they have to go get the ingredients for that dish. And mm-hmm. that was our daily routine. We had to do that every day. And I, that isn't as convenient in the modern times right now. But I remember that was a part of our day is we mm-hmm. go, we plan what to eat. We get the ingredients and they spend a few hours making the food. And that yeah. was just normal. That yeah. was, everybody did that and they attended to the garden. And, you know, sometimes we pick the herbs from our own garden. We wash mm-hmm. them and eat them, or we pick the grapes and we wash them and eat them in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even during the sanctions, which were really tough on Iraq, because there was just a lack of resources, <laughs> you know, we didn't have like, there was, for example, like you couldn't go outside and buy candy. You couldn't go outside and buy cake, nothing conventional, nothing imported. So they had to make everything from scratch at home and meat, um, like animal products were really expensive and eggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my grandma was really creative. She bought a lot of hens <laughs> and yeah, she made uh-huh. the back of the house into like a hen, you know, and then they, we would just collect their eggs mm-hmm. daily. And we mm-hmm. had our eggs from our hens mm-hmm. <laughs> and they just were produced. And, you know, she just, I was helping her. I was also, it was kind of a, it was a fun game for me as a child to help her with the hens and uh-huh, uh-huh. Yours, but it was fun. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, me growing up around that, you know, and being exposed to that, it kind of set the foundation of how nutrition and food is such a huge part of our daily life mm-hmm. and how, you know, after all those years, And as I grew up and I became an adult and went to college and live in this very fast paced individualistic society, Mm -hmm. how a lot of these values, you know, came apart. And it was interesting to see the family dynamic as well change to adapt Mm -hmm. to the new environment. So Mm -hmm. my grandmother, the same grandmother lives in San Diego. Uh, I see her once in a blue moon, unfortunately, I don't go Mm -hmm. often. I don't go there that often. Um, I live in Seattle. My mm-hmm. other sister lives in a farther part in San Diego. My other sister lives in Europe. So yeah, we don't have that, you know, coming together anymore. Uh, but mm-hmm. I do believe that my grandmother until this day cooks daily and mm-hmm. tries to get her ingredients daily. Mm-hmm. She, she doesn't have the luxury of having her own garden where she could, you know, plant her things, unfortunately. And I don't think she has the energy for it either. But yeah, all of that changed. And, you know, as we adapted and moved up here, which is, isn't necessarily bad. It's just different world. It's a different (laughs) world. And so how do you reinstall that in your life? You know, I can't bring my grandparents' house. They lived in a very large house that was three stories, huge front garden, huge back backyard garden and Mm -hmm. a garage and a high walls that was private. And it was also I don't know. It wasn't the farmhouse. It was kind of a smaller farmhouse. I don't uh-huh. know how to describe it, but that's the system over there. They're kind of like villas. Yeah. It's kind of like the Italian villas in a way. Yeah. Um, and everybody was like this. Yeah. All our neighbors. We even grew bananas at one point. Wow. I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah. They were like the mini bananas. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
you can't do that here. And some people are fortunate to have a larger home with a garden where they could plant their garden and pick, you know, pick from it and eat. And that's wonderful. But for the average person who has to go to work and has a nine hour shift, well, how do you do this? How do you plan this? And, you know, we have options, which is great right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are options for people who are health conscious and they want to eat healthy. And there's even, you know, instead of getting fast food, they have, I was reading online and I found this service where they deliver healthy food to your door that you just microwave. So there are amazing options out there. Um, Mm -hmm. It isn't ideal, but it's also better than a drive-in at a fast food chain. So even, and even fast food chains now, they have healthier items on the menu. But if you're so hungry and you're getting in line for fast food, you're so hungry that you're in a fast food lane, the the chances of you making a healthy choice are less. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to give in to the more delicious flavors and the smells because you came here because you were so hungry. So your neurology and your body is working against your decision-making. Right. Where if you plan to eat and you eat, regularly and your yes. blood sugar levels are regular, then you're less likely to opt for or be weak to fall for that. So yes, it, yeah, it's, it's good. I think if you're in a group with people in a car and you're on a strict diet and they want to eat at this, you know, fast food drive-through, that person has an option to pick something healthy, yeah. but the odds of that happening compared with the amount of people who go there for convenience when they're very hungry is not yeah. as much. Um, so it's good, but it's not so good. <laughs> right. <laughs> but right, it's still yeah. good. Yeah. Right. So um, yeah. So it's it it all boils down to the individual um and how you know the, the values they carry out in their day and where did the where did these values come from? And going back to your question, is that it started from an early age. You know, I cared about art, that was an innate part of me. And you know, my inquisitive nature about health because the people mm-hmm. who I'm, whom I love the most and cherish mm-hmm. had, you know, terrible health incidents and that I witnessed. And I it just started this endeavor in mm-hmm. asking why, mm-hmm. why, and looking at everything. So I studied what I studied for those specific reasons. And I am so grateful for the opportunity to be able to have this education at some of the most, you know, scientifically uh, researched and advanced schools in the nation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you had some really interestingly diverse experiences in terms of, you know, your grandfather with his poor health, but also this really intact table of people and really good sources for nutrition, really healthy food. And, you know, it's certainly the way your joy is palpable in how you talk about how everybody sat around that table and contributed to the meal and that that really is a shift. And I think you you hit the nail on the head about asking the question of, how do we reinstate that togetherness around the table that there's so much of our digestion that relies on the neurology of being safe and, and cared for at when you're digesting that food. And so being able to be with people that you love, who love you, who are caring for you, who are paying you enough attention, um, that goes such a long way in terms of helping the digestion and enjoying the food. So what an interesting mix. And, and you came kind of out of this Gulf War um, as an 11-year-old. And, you know, you and I have talked about kind of as a refugee and as an immigrant. And then when you did your master's work um, at Tufts, you really, you really focused on blue zones, which are 
areas where people live very, very long, healthy lives. So can you talk to us a little bit about your thesis work and what you learned about blue zones and kind of what that juxtaposition has been like for you? So just to back uh, backtrack a little bit, my interest in nutrition has been there since I was little, mm-hmm. but it was intensified even more, in, especially with my thesis proposal by my mother's, late mother's illness. She had breast cancer. May God rest her soul in peace. Um, she loved cooking and eating and all of that, but she wasn't really a believer in preventative. It, you know, she just lived life at large and she liked to cook and bake and eat everything. Mm-hmm. And we had this constant battle at home always like, this is mm-hmm. too much baking. It's too mm-hmm. much ghee. That's too. <laughs> and I was always the police. When she got diagnosed, I just, you know, my research kicked in, <laughs> my research mm-hmm. abilities, and it was just reading and reading. And then it was a coincidence, you know sort of around the same time I was trying to apply to grad school and it just kind of like, it made sense at the time. And I'm so grateful for that, for everything that happened in my life, because it always fueled something so positive. And Mm -hmm. in this case, it was this. And so I started, and even with nutrition, you know, nutrition is such a vast field Mm -hmm. that it really is so customizable and nothing, no single statement applies to everyone. Mm-hmm. Even the word healthy could be so dangerous to throw around sometimes mm-hmm. around, mm-hmm. you know, when you're labeling foods and well, healthy, what, what does that mean? What do you mean healthy? Like, because mm-hmm. you, you, everything eventually gets broken down. Right. And so I think healthy is used, thrown out around um, so much, but, it, but it is so transient and it is so relative to where you put it and in what context and what the background is for that word healthy you know, if this is this dish or this particular food is healthy for you based on your goals and your existing health or mm-hmm. pre-existing conditions. But this particular food might not be so healthy for this individual who has digestive issues or who's allergic to it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, that's my beef with the word healthy. <laughs> and mm-hmm. there's so many other words in nutrition that, you know, I just, I just can't, like, I could talk for hours about how they are used and misused. <laughs> so I, you know, again, fueled by my inquisitive is actually ancient health. And mm-hmm. it was also um, influenced by uh, Dr. Gundry. Mm-hmm. He's a uh, cardiovascular surgeon, I believe in Palm Springs. But mm-hmm. he, he has a background in evolutionary biology and he wrote books about health and nutrition. And it was so fascinating, the mm-hmm. theories he talked about in his book. But he definitely, you know, kind of influenced a little bit of my interest about mm-hmm. studying the blue zones and people mm-hmm. who inhabited these areas. And I was interested in how did their blood work look uh, mm-hmm. on a molecular level and, you know, what markers were, were high or low, you know, in those individuals who mm-hmm. lived a really long life above hundred healthfully without any illnesses, you know, mm-hmm. who had communities and cooked their own food. And so it kind of, a little bit goes back to how I grew up where we cooked every day and we went and grocery shopped every day, fresh produce. And we picked from our garden. They kind of do that in all of these regions. They cook daily, most of them, and if not all of them, are mainly plant-based. Um, not all of them are vegan. There's one area, uh, Loma Linda in California, uh, and I think they they practice a religious, I forgot what the seventh advent, I forgot the mm-hmm. I can't recall, but they practice a faith. And in that faith, they 
can't eat any animal products. And I think they can't eat sugar and they can't consume caffeine, something like that. Mm -hmm. So they're the only group that I know hundred percent, they are hundred percent vegan, but the other, the other, like, you know, Okinawa, Ikara, South America, I think they eat animal, animal products in a very small percentage, like maybe 20 to 10% from the entire you know, th their entire nutrition ingestion of what they eat. So they eat mostly beans and lentils. Um, they eat a lot of, you know, fresh vegetables and uh, whole grains. Um, and they eat until they're 80% full. So they mm -hmm. don't eat to maximum fullness. Mm -hmm. uh, they consume a little bit of alcohol once or, mm -hmm. you know, two times a week. And it's just a small amount of alcohol and it's interesting, you know, the alcohol argument, uh, and I was reading about that and it activates hermosis, but this is not necessarily something that will happen to everybody, it, you know, given how they live their life and how they're not eating a lot of sugar and how their diet and lifestyle is for them, for this particular individual who lives this kind of lifestyle, they will benefit from that little hermosis that they get from the alcohol, which activates longevity genes for them. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, you know, for example, in Ikara in Sicily, the wine has resveratrol. Uh, sorry, it's from the skin of the grapes. And mm -hmm. that's why the wine is good for them, not because of the alcohol. It's because mm -hmm. of the other benefits from the grapes. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they don't have a glass of wine every day. <laughs> they have it once or twice a week and it's a, a very small amount. That's the average. You know, I don't have mm -hmm. exact numbers, but that's the average of how they consume alcohol in those regions. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, you know, those people live long because they don't have chronic illnesses, mm -hmm. they don't have hypertension or heart disease or high levels of cholesterol, or they don't have precancerous growths. That's mm -hmm. why they are living a long life. So that was the logic behind, okay, well, I'm, you know, I want to focus on these individuals who managed to live um, longer life and how did they do it? Well, they don't have chronic illnesses. Well, well, what would prevent chronic illnesses? What kind of nutritional habits, what kinds of foods, um, lifestyle changes that mm -hmm. could help an individual to lower their, let's say, mTOR and IGF-1 insulin-like growth hormones, right? Mm -hmm. So how, how do we, because these individuals have these two markers low and mm -hmm. they have been, you know, shown in multiple studies that they are low in, in people who have a long lifespan. And there's other studies that, you know, people who have sarcopenia, uh, they have muscle low, loss. yeah, so it's loss muscle. Sarcopenia is, yes, is muscle degeneration. Loss muscle, muscle, and, and muscle. they have lower mTOR. So then there's this like dance, well, you know, well, we need to have higher mTOR for this, but then, mm -hmm. so that boils down to goals, right? And it boils mm -hmm. down to pre-existing health. Mm -hmm. And how, you know, nutrition goals will change as you age and in mm -hmm. every different stage of your life, your nutritional needs and health will change. So if you're younger and you're in high school and you're on a on the swim team or you're on some team, your nutrition and your consumption of certain cal calories and micronutrients will be different than someone who is in their late 40s into their 50s. Mm -hmm. And this is where things start to get interesting and people will start to get like, it's the start of chronic mm -hmm. illnesses, right? And mm -hmm. uh, in the book by Dr. Gundry, he talks about an interesting theory, evolutionary theory, where, you know, uh, if the body or your genetic 
makeup will sense that you're not a good fit and you might be competing with your progeny. It will activate killer genes. And then oh my God. all of these mm-hmm. things will start to happen. It's just, yeah. you know, it's a theory. He talks about it in his book. But regardless of whether we believe in that or not, you know, the reality of the situation is, yeah, most people start to have the onset of their chronic illnesses happen around that age. If younger, if they are on a very unhealthy lifestyle. So the nutritional needs for someone who is aiming for longevity and Mm -hmm. reversal or stopping the onset of chronic illnesses will be different than the young person who's competing in a sport, different than someone who wants to lose fat, will Mm -hmm. be different for someone who's diabetic, will be different for someone who has digestive issues and maybe have some deficiencies caused by their digestive issues. So all these individuals have different nutritional needs. And Mm -hmm. what's healthy for one person is not necessarily healthy for the other, because like I said, healthy describes, it's a transient term, depending on where Ah. you put it. And so how do you work with patients? Like what is the process for a person to come to you for nutritional support, for nutritional advice, for for evaluation and treatment? What does that process look like to work with you? It is very individualistic. Every person has to have a customizable plan for them, something that works for them that is easier for them to adhere to. We will talk about behavioral changes. I am not a huge fan of introducing major changes a lot all at once. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you need to introduce one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's customizable depending on their goals. And we would talk about if their goals are realistic or not. We would talk about their background, their health, habits, budgets, environments, you know, where, where is the temptation? Um, talk about their health. You know, if, if you're just losing weight just so you can binge drink or if you're losing weight just mm-hmm. for vanity or, uh-huh. you know, if, if a certain diet plant works for you or if you followed fad diets and It really, it's a very flexible way of dealing with the client and setting Mm -hmm. realistic expectations Mm -hmm. for the person in Mm -hmm. front of me. Mm -hmm. And talking about risks of, you know, doing things too fast and how that could affect your biochemistry and how it could affect your, you know, basal metabolic rate and how instead of you becoming a burning fat machine, your body would get hurt from crash dieting. So yeah, it's a very uh, customizable thing. I don't believe in the one size fits all. There are certain things that are scientifically proven and we know they are accurate, which is, for example, for weight loss, it's energy in versus energy out. Mm-hmm. So there is, you know, it, it doesn't matter what you follow or which mm-hmm. food group you cut out or not cut out or include. At the end of the day, weight loss happens, you know, how you spend energy and how you consume energy. So mm-hmm. if you eat a lot of calories and you're, you don't move a lot and you don't burn a lot, you're, you're going to gain weight. If you mm-hmm. eat the right amount of calories for weight loss that don't harm your organs and your body, then you will lose weight at a steady rate going down a zigzag line. Mm-hmm. So if you're a fan of weighing yourself daily, expect some days that number will go up. Some days the mm-hmm. number will go down, but it should go in a downward trend. This is such an interesting conversation to talk about because we definitely see that some patients with um, immune dysfunction will do different things with their calories so that some calories taken in can change how they get processed by what the immune system is doing. So if the immune system 
um, or the basal metabolic rate has shifted, then sometimes the calories are moved through quickly. And then sometimes they stick based on kind of the inflammation level of the body. It's such an interesting thing because there's so much, you know, this black box. I mean, it's exactly what you're saying about customizing because every person is so different. And so we have such a unique makeup inside of us in our experience at our clinic, you know, having something coming into one person versus something coming into another person, it can, the body can respond so differently because in this black box of unique metabolic magic, there's um, different things can happen. It's so interesting. Absolutely. Interesting. If, if somebody is ill, for example, I would not have them on an, on like a restriction. I would be like, just get healthy. Because yeah. if you have a lot of inflammation and you're sick and you have the flu or you have COVID yeah. or yeah. something, yeah. you should not be trying to limit calories. You should be trying to eat good, nutritious food and getting healthy again. Yeah. And you know, bringing that because if you're, you know, if you're sick, if you're sick, your inflammation, your your body is responding, and you have a lot of inflammation. But you know, more to that point is that yeah, certain foods can raise you know inflammation in the body, and certain uh -huh. foods can lower it. And depending on you know, let's say somebody who has an autoimmune disorder, how you know eating mm -hmm. an anti-inflammatory diet can help reduce the symptoms of their mm -hmm. autoimmune disorder, or mm -hmm. sometimes even remove a hundred percent. There's various mm -hmm. studies that have shown that and various individuals who have talked about that openly, like, Hey, I followed an anti-inflammatory diet and my mm -hmm. IBS had almost diminished or, Absolutely. you know, this skin condition that I have had almost gone to non-existing. And uh, it's all about choices at the end. Yeah. <laughs> and we know our priorities, priorities and opportunities. Right. And I know that this has been big for you as well with your, because your nutrition from your master's in nutrition is not just about nutrition, but also about food policy. And so, yes. so many of our choices really come out of what opportunities are available to us. You know, if we have, I know from my own life that when I've been working 60 hour work weeks, my nutrition, you know, my ability to cook a two hour meal just really tanks. <laughs> so yeah. talk to us a little bit about this broader picture of nutrition in terms of like what is included in food policy and what are some of the policies that we should look for and seek and support in order to help our population be healthy from so, a nutrition um, perspective? Yeah. So the Dean of, uh, the nutrition school at Tufts University. Uh, his mm -hmm. name is Dr. Muzaffarian. I think just a few days ago, he spoke before a United States Senate committee uh, in support of a bipartisan bill to convene a second national White House conference on food, nutrition, hunger, and health. Ooh. Of course, he talked about a lot of stuff, but the most important thing I would say, in my opinion, you know, that he mentioned is how, you know, we are on a path of disaster. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have to get, you know, healthcare costs under control and, you know, and we're not going to be able to do that unless we address the top cause, which is poor nutrition. And yeah. in order for you to address poor nutrition, and especially in underprivileged you know, societies, you, you know, there needs to be more nutrition funding for studies, for nutrition mm -hmm. studies. And for the programs, you know, nutrition, support nutrition programs for the underprivileged societies and underprivileged mm -hmm. areas in our communities. For example, he mentioned that one out of every two American adults is diabetic or pre-diabetic and three in four struggle with obesity or are overweight. These and other diet-related health conditions 
disproportionately impact vulnerable populations such as ethnic minorities and those living in rural areas. And mm-hmm. the people affected are 12 times more likely to die after being infected by COVID. Um, so it's a public health crisis, you know, and it's also, he's saying it's also a government spending crisis. Direct health care spending on diabetes alone has ballooned to more than the entire budget of the United States Department of Agriculture. Oh, my goodness. So it oh is also goodness. a national security issue. Three out of four young Americans are ineligible to serve in the military, oh my with the top medical reason being obesity. Wow. <laughs> Wow. And it's a major problem for our economy with 1.1 trillion lost each year in healthcare spending and yeah. decreased productivity due to diet related diseases. Isn't that unbelievable? So, you know, that's policy for you, right? So, <laughs> you know, as much as we talk about the individual choices that we make, there are things outside of our own that sometimes we can't control. If you happen to live in a rural area, you probably won't get a lot of access to organic produce. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't be as convenient for you if you have this one grocery store. You know, it wouldn't be as convenient for you to have your job and be able to go to that store to get access to organic produce. So that's just a small example. Access to produce. I mean, there's so many areas that are food deserts where like a convenience store is where people buy their food. Absolutely. And not a lot of fresh. I mean, our convenient, our con- corner convenience store sells fruit. You can get cut fruit, avocados, lemons, limes, bananas, mm-hmm. and apples. And then like cheese sticks and egg salad. And, you know, but the, so like if, if that was the only place we could shop, you know, and here in Seattle, in the heart of the city, we have so many options. You know, I've got like lucky, yeah. and PCC, <laughs> like. Yeah as well as multiple other grocery stores, but, you know, two health grocery stores, you know, within two miles of me or three miles, something like that. So it's, you know, but, but there are these food deserts, you're exactly right. And then our health policies really need to shift to be able to support more on our prevention, population. more on yeah. prevention and, yeah. you know, studying how we could do that and implement that more than spending on treatments. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And, and, and that right. has always been, I think, you know, in terms of policy and a lot of, and I believe a lot of healthcare professionals advocate for that is let's spend more on prevention. Absolutely. Let's focus more on prevention versus just treatment. And, you know, hopefully one day our voices will be heard and things will just Absolutely. shift permanently in that direction. But yeah. for the time being, we are on a path to disaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying for an uplifting podcast here. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that's the uh, well. Don't quote this me. is the, the the dean of the uh, nutrition school. At, oh yes, uh, yes. Well, uh, and Tufts but you're University. absolutely right. Yeah. And you he, know, he's speaking to the Senate, so he is trying to get their yes. attention. And there's, yes. you know, you have to be. Hey, look at me. This is a disaster. <laughs> like I need support. You know, so I, I understand where that. You know, yes. Emotional, uh, but you know, regardless of what the policy is and what the policy is, what we can do as individuals, you know, it also boils down to the people you elect, right? To who Mm -hmm. you support and if they do support these things or not. So being well-educated on the people that we put in office and their background and the things they promise us is very important. And I think, you know, that's part of the democratic election system that we have here is we need to, as individuals, put time aside to do a little bit of research on the individuals who make big decisions 
in our policy and lawmaking and how this country is run. Yeah. <laughs> That's the least we could do. But, you know, regardless of that, you know, we have to think about our holistic life, like our life as a whole. What are the priorities? What comes first? What comes second? What comes? And I think looking at those priorities every once in a while and reminding yourself you know, it's not just, you know, you could get anxiety about paying your bills and doing this, but also if, you know, if you don't have your health, you won't mm-hmm. be able to do any of these things. Mm-hmm. So we go back to the vehicle that's driving all these things, the driving yeah. force in our life. Yeah. And, you know, also health is not just nutrition. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people I have seen, I have actually almost all of them. I've talked to them about meditation, lowering their stress levels exercise and movement habits. I have advised certain individuals to get a standing desk. Yeah. I have advised and coached certain individuals on and provided them with resources on meditation and how they get started with guided meditation. In the yeah. beginning, um, I've talked about, you know, psychological things that could have happened, mm-hmm. you know, or conditions that you might have that might be driving this, how much sleep you're getting. Yeah. Um, and also hormones, what other medications you're on. How is your, you know, are you on birth control and how, what is that doing to your cravings and how Mm -hmm. could we control those cravings? Mm -hmm. What's your environment like? Are your family members in support of your goals? Mm -hmm. Um, Can you clean up your environment? And by that, I mean your kitchen environment, your house Mm -hmm. environment. Are you walking and there's donuts on the, on the counter? (laughs) Or are you walking and there are vegetables, right? So that's the environment, the nutrition environment that you need to be aware of. So one of the first things I tackle is that what's yeah. your environment like? Yeah. So don't buy unhealthy foods home. If you must get some treat, then you would have to go drive to get it and you get yeah. just one for one time. But yeah. it's not something that you want to stock up from Costco in your freezer. Uh-uh. <laughs> don't make it easy. Don't make it convenient. Make it difficult. And even, even, even buying a lot of it and storing it in the top cupboard. Well, you can reach the top cupboard. Yes. You know? And if you have 10 in there, what would prevent you from grabbing five at a time? Like, yes. you know, and if someone has a binge eating disorder, it's, it's, it's like, you know, having drugs around. Like, so, so you, for that person, you know, there is also certain kind of therapy that they have to do and there's behavioral therapy, you know, mm-hmm. um, theories that we have to implement and setting realistic expectations that you're going to do a behavior change, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not just an eating change or just, and it's also thinking about, you know, I'm eating to fuel my body. I'm not just eating for a pleasure. And there's so much of our eating choices, our nutrition choices that we make around stress and safety or threat. Um, and so being able to feel safe in our lives and fulfilled and to lower our stress is yes. one of the ways. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I have yeah. to mention this. There's a f- an interesting study about how people who watch horror movies snack more on unhealthy <laughs> options than people who watch a comedy or just like a normal show. And it's really? so funny because I like horror movies and I'm just like yeah. sitting with my popcorn and stuffing my face. <laughs> it's so interesting but it's so true because it provides that comfort Uh, right yes yes Uh, oh that is so interesting that is so interesting (laughs) that's hilarious it's a good way to make money in those uh, theaters right yes make the horror movies sell the popcorn 
so much of our safety is not only kind of our environment, but also are we expressing who we are? Are we living our dharma? Are we doing what we're here to do? And it makes me, I, I just keep coming full circle back to like the incredible mix that you are with your nutrition, but also with your art. And so I'm curious if you can talk to us a little bit about the role of art and healing and kind of the relationship inside of you between your art and your nutrition and food and science and policy work. Like, how do those come together in the single person that is you? A very interesting mix, but it does really come together. So, uh -huh. you know, so policy aside from food policy is just like, you know, being, um, being someone who was born in Iraq and who lived in a, under a tyrant, pretty much Saddam Hussein's regime was very, uh, an oppressive regime. And, you know, we were every single morning, we stand at 7am in this, in the school uh, playground, standing like, you know, military style and chanting things, praising him. Wow. That was a very oppressive regime. Authoritarian it was literally shoved down our throats where we had to praise this yeah. king of a president every yes. single morning and the walls had ears and you could never criticize the government. You could never speak wow. up. You could never say anything. The only thing you can say is praise and obey. Keep your head down, walk by the wall. Don't make any noise. So as a child, wow. yeah, that left something inside of me. So, yeah. you know, what he, fast forward <laughs> years and years, decades later, I'm here in the U S and then, you know, it was under the previous administration when the um, uh, zero tolerance policy upheaval happened. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was so moved by it because mm -hmm. I remember certain memories from my life, you know, for mm -hmm. example, you know, in the midst of sanctions, the economical sanctions in Iraq, where the nation was starved and people were hungry, you know, we would have to sit and watch national television display the birthday celebration of our president and him mm -hmm. eating, celebrating lavishly and eating lots of cake and delicious food. Wow. And, and we're paying, the, the people are paying the price for his erratic behavior and him invading yeah. Kuwait. And so that was just so messed up to witness. So when, yeah. when this happened and I saw how the kids were being taken away and putting in a detention camp at the border, oh my, oh my gosh, I was just so moved yeah. by that. And, yeah. you know, my daughter at the time was about three and I was just like boiling on the inside you know, yeah. what if, what if this was me? What if, yeah. you know, I was fortunate enough to arrive here legally yeah. as a political refugee back in 98, but these people, I mean, nobody would put their child on a boat unless the water right. was safer right. than the land. So right. these people came to the border and doing this because they're in dire situation. Yeah. And then, you know, they're the kids, the only security blanket they have is their parents. Right. So, you know, right at the border, you take away the safety from them and then you put them in this detention center. And yeah. there was all these articles about kids being molested and mistreated. And yeah. there is no, nobody was monitoring this the right way. Yep. And yep. so that happened. And then the Time magazine <laughs> cover came out, you know, where they photoshopped, you know, the previous president uh, with the little child. It was just heartbreaking. So mm -hmm. I reappropriated that image into a painting that I had already started about the mm -hmm. Gulf War that I had called um, the Gulf War was a piece of cake. And then that painting morphed into, I really don't care, do you? 
in quotation mm-hmm. marks. It became mm-hmm. this painting. And that's the one that the stranger wrote about because it was, you know, it happened in a very timely manner uh, mm. in response to the situation that happened. I think it was in July of mm-hmm. 2017, I think. And basically it was a comparison between when we act like a tyrant and you are a tyrant and you're mm-hmm. in an office, you know, in this kind of, I don't know, what do you call it? Like the administration and the way they were behaving, it was more authoritarian than it was a democratic thing. And Mm -hmm. so it it was trying to kind of draw a parallel between my experience as a child, which Mm -hmm. most of the, everybody got affected, but kids got affected the most. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. these things are, they become part of your neurobiology in your brain Mm -hmm. and you have Mm -hmm. the state ingrained with the sounds of bombs and, you know, the starvation that she put them through. We didn't mm-hmm. know what strawberries or apples tasted like until we left the country because those things wow. were so expensive to import, right? Wow. So it was just some basic things that people here take for granted that we were deprived of. So the children got affected back then. And now because of all the political stuff and because of what President Trump was doing, the children got affected the most. So I drew that parallel, you know, yeah. and speaking out about how as a global society, we got so numb to seeing yeah. children being the victim of political yeah. decisions. Yes. And they're just children. They're, they, they didn't ask to be born. They just came to this life. And you know, they're innocent souls that we are torturing. And, you know, around the same time, it was, you know, the Syrian refugee crisis and the little mm-hmm. child who was washed on the shore and the other child who was found under the rebels in Syria. So it was just the other layer was just talking about how we got used to seeing children Mm. bloody situation Mm -hmm. we see it in the news and we're immune to that you know humanitarian response that wait a minute those are Mm -hmm. kids Mm -hmm. and so that was you know me responding to policy let's say Mm -hmm. in a way that Mm -hmm. is artistic and it is not related to nutrition so art has been a healing method for me and I and I didn't know I was doing that it was you know it was how I coped with my emotions. You know, I had to internalize a lot of emotions, war trauma, for example, I had to internalize that. I remember, you know, I was making sculpture out of shrapnel in front of our house. Mm. And I was thinking, well, this thing that fell behind our house, I think it was like a half a faulty missile that exploded in the air and half of it fell behind our house. And it left a huge dent on the street. And I remember thinking, well, that could have could have fallen on our house and it could have been us because it was just so close. And every morning I'd wake up to the smoke smell. And I mean, our morning was kind of interesting because they would bomb at night. Like the Mm -hmm. bombing would start like at night. So we were Mm -hmm. up most of the night just hearing bombs go off. Mm -hmm. Uh, So every time (laughs) there is the 4th of July celebration, everybody is enjoying it. And I'm just like, please Mm. God, let it be over. (laughs) I don't yeah. want to hear those sounds. They remind me of the sounds when I was a child. Yeah. Yeah. And so art was a mechanism of coping and it was a talent. And I've, I unknowingly channeled you know, mm. that talent and this ability to cope with all the emotions I had inside. And so, you know, aside from right now, I'm not necessarily painting from my wounds as I used to be before. Now art and painting and visual art became more of just another, it's another endeavor to make this world better, Mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily just a coping mechanism. But I do love teaching people how they can use it to cope. 
So I did that, you know, when I collaborated with the Office of Arts and Culture. And before that, I had collaborated with, uh, I think it's a, a small office here that is called Art with Heart, where they take children and teenagers from abusive homes and they teach them how to do art for healing. And I had collaborated with them in the Seattle Center. And then I did a small project that was community-based called Shades of Emotions. And it was about people, you know, picking colors from painted canvas and placing it on the canvas where they felt the emotion the most. So yellow is anxiety. So they take it and they put it on the flower that was painted yellow. Say, okay, I I mostly felt anxious these days. So I'll take these colors, put them on the yellow or felt loving. And then, so at the end we had this painting that was kind of a, uh, a poll of how people felt. So mm-hmm. that was one. And then after that, I did a bigger project with the Office of Arts and Culture where they sponsored me for two years and it was called Psychosomatic. And I was mm-hmm. teaching people about what psychosomatic is, which mm-hmm. is, you know, if you get anxious and you feel a certain way, it could manifest in your physical body and how you feel. You might get a headache or a stomach ache or, um, I don't know, some autoimmune thing flares up due to stress. So I would explain that to people and then I would, you know, help them, teach them how they could paint their psychosomatic experience on a painting I already had that was pre-made. Um, and they could, for example, someone would say, okay, well, when I get anxious, I get a stomach pain. So they would paint on the stomach of, of one of the paintings of the figures they choose. And so that went on for two years and I, I loved it. I mean, it happened. I, I would do it on May, which was Mental Health Awareness Month. Uh, so we did it in May of 2018 and 2019. Um, and it happened in Seattle Center. There was a gallery there. So, you know, it was even advertised on their digital, uh, the screen that they had on the road. Mm-hmm. It was really rewarding. It was very mm-hmm. rewarding to see people, you know, go back and come, you know, go and uh, the, the paintings were for sale. So they would go and they come back days later. Oh, I want to buy this. I painted on it. But also I went home and I thought about all the things, you know, we talked about in terms of psychosomatic and mental health. And, you know, thank you. I actually picked up a set of acrylics and I'm going to start painting, you know, just, oh, just this fun to do. So, so it's also to encourage people to pursue art just for the sake of enjoyment and not mm-hmm. necessarily to sell a painting, not mm-hmm. necessarily to be the best artist in the world, but just because you enjoy it. And we don't have enough advocating for the arts in our exactly. policy and in our world. And, you know, especially everyone is focused on money, money, money. And then, well, if you, if you tell them you're an artist, well, how much money do you make? Or how, <laughs> how are you surviving? You know, those are the kinds of questions some artists get. And it's, it's unfortunate. And artists do have to struggle financially sometimes, but they don't think like that. They think differently about art. Mm-hmm. It's more like a life calling. It's a mission. If they don't do it, they will be very sad. And if they do it, it's not easy. It's hard work. But that's for professional artists. Now, the individual person, you know, would benefit greatly from an artistic outlet, whether be it attending symphony or live music or trying to play an instrument or picking up sewing or picking up knitting or doing a little bit of, you know, mobile. They have these like really cute little watercolor kits that you could buy. You could just stick it in your purse and, you know, or you could take an art class. Yes. And it's just for fun. It yes. doesn't have to be for anything. And that a lot of studies had shown that art does play a role 
in reducing anxiety and working mm-hmm. through your emotions. And it's kind of like venting on a journal, or you could mm-hmm. also be listening to nice music and just painting, you know, mm-hmm. feeling, feeling that you could channel that those feelings into something. It's sort of what I did growing up. Um, and I didn't know I was doing that until I became an adult. And then I realized, ah, that's what I've been doing. But it's, it's more than that for me. I have literally half my brain functions like a scientist and the other half functions like an artist. Um, and I have my own artistic methods of what I do to get, you know, to start painting. And it's a very different world from the scientific analytical world. I just yes. check out with that one and I start with this one. <laughs> and, you know, I've managed to come to this and I've managed to love my brain the way it is. Um, I recently found out I have ADHD and Mm -hmm. I did a lot of diagnostic testing with two different individuals to confirm it because I didn't Mm want to, I didn't (laughs) want to just accept one opinion. Like I always do. I just went in and then I'm like, yep, you're the poster child for ADD. Uh But it's interesting because, you know, I have ADD or I have Uh ADHD. I had no idea. I only found out two months ago and I've been coping with it my whole life. And I've developed all these methods to yeah. cope with it. The yeah. only thing I couldn't, you know, fix on my own was the being late all the time. Uh-huh. Um, that, and, and, you know, after I found out and after going to therapy, you know, it was just not, it, he, he just told me, he said, it's just not in your hand. It's like, there's yeah. that part in the middle that just doesn't connect. And it was just yes. like, wow. So now I have, you know, two reminders to everything and, you know, just knowing the diagnosis helps you yeah. cope better with it. Even if yep. you don't, necessarily take the treatment. Oh, that is fascinating. It's amazing to hear you talk about both the food and the nutrition and then the policy and then your background and then the role of art. You know, for longtime listeners, they know that every time we have this podcast, we start it with, we talk about everything that can heal your neurology, which is really everything. And and you are the, you know, the classic Renaissance woman who's doing all these multiple things with these different sides of your brain. So your specialty is really being able to kind of dance back and forth between both the art part that heals your neurology. And you've made that so clear, especially in terms of your old trauma and your experience in your life and your childhood. But then also, you know, you paint that table of your childhood so vividly in how you describe it. And so your your food world is also so rich and with depth and breadth. And then I, I can see now, you, you know, when you and I had first started talking and you were talking about growing up during the Gulf War with the bombs, and there was, you know, there was so much loss and limitation in terms of the embargo, things that you didn't have. And so it was so fascinating to me that your focus went to the blue zones. But I can see how this is kind of figuring out how do you make it so that you do have it all? How do you make the choices? How do you put yourself into the position so that you can grow old gracefully and with, with your health intact? You know, so many of us in the U.S. right now, so many of us with Western lifestyles around the world, you know, our lives are longer, but our quality can be very poor. You know, the, the last 20 to 30 years, many people are very sick and they stay sick. So there's um, you you are alive, but you're not necessarily doing the things that you want to do with your life, like your grandfather. And so those blue zones are those areas where people live so long with with higher quality and capacity, with higher functionality. And so, what a gift you you bring to the table. God, look at all these food analogies. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's uh, the art know, and the nutrition piece. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, with nutrition and with health, you know, 
the it boils down to the question of what your priority is right now. If you're, you know, in a war zone, your priorities are mm-hmm. so much different than someone who lives, you know, in, in, in a right. very stable nation um, that you don't have to worry about your first line of safety. Yeah, there's scarcity that where I grew up, but also I did see how they coped with it. And it was yeah. pretty yeah. impressive. They, I mean, my grandmother dried her own tomatoes, made her own tomato paste. They made orange juice concentrate, lemon concentrate. They made their own fruit preserves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was such a joy. You know, it wasn't looked at as a chore. It right, was interesting because, right. you know, they would have the TV on and then my aunts and the neighbors would come over and then my grandmother and then they're making all these things and they're jamming and they're packing. And I was just a kid playing around. You know, we had a puppy and I was just like going in and I'll do this and bring this. And But now when I recall that time, it was yeah. just so interesting to yeah. see how they were so creative in finding solutions yeah. in a very limiting environment. And, you know, it, you know, in Middle East and even in Syria and in other nations, and I'm pretty sure in other parts of the world too, but I don't have the proper knowledge to speak of other nations, but they've developed over the years habits um, because of the political unrest or because of right. the famines that they've experienced, they've developed recipes ways of living habits and yes. certain kinds of foods that kept them going with energy and everything. They weren't expensive foods, right? right? So like right. farmers live longer, mm-hmm. even though they were poorer and they eat mostly vegetables and grains, but they live longer. And it's not because of what they eat. It's also because, you know, they farmed every day and they were getting sun and fresh air and being outdoors and moving their bodies in a certain way that was genetically preferred to keep them live long, right? And they weren't consuming a lot of energy that was mm-hmm. beyond what they were expending, right? So they were balanced just the right way and they were doing it unknowingly. It's just the culture of being a farmer. And they're yeah. not exposing themselves to a lot of pollutants, not even light pollution, right? Mm-hmm. So there were there were some studies that were done, I think by the University of Tel Aviv about you know women and breast cancer and comparing women mm-hmm. who lived you know, in rural areas versus women who lived in, in the city and mm-hmm. how light pollution played a role because people who yeah. lived in the farm, they didn't, you know, they slept with, with sunset and woke up with, with sunrise and they mm-hmm. didn't have to deal with blue light or mm-hmm. cell phones. <laughs> they just went to sleep because it's pitch dark. So their yeah. pineal gland was producing, yeah. was not disturbed, was regulated, was producing regular consistent amounts of melatonin you know, we know it's a hormone, but we also, it's an antioxidant. So, you know, it would go on at night. And I imagine, you know, my own description is that it's it's going and correcting everything as yeah. they sleep and yeah. rest, right? Yeah. Where people yeah. who live in the city, okay, tonight we'll stay a bit longer. We'll watch a movie. Well, they'll be scrolling on their phone and, you know, in, in their bed. So, you know, even if they close the blinds or even if they don't, there's like lights from the streets. So there's light pollution and the pineal gland would only work in pitch darkness. Yes. And so, yes, technology and companies have reacted to that. They made that, you know, the dim option on the phone where it's not. Right. They also sell like these blue light blocking glasses. That glasses. Yeah. On. You know, people have to remember all these little things, you know, right. sometimes you think how much do we need to remember the changes we need to make or how much, you know, we want to, take ourselves and live in an environment that is more 
you know, health friendly? Mm-hmm. And what are our risk factors? You know, now yeah. we have all this genetic testing being done. Yep. So it's yep. good to know. Yeah. It's good to know what your odds are and how you, you know, what you can do on a day-to-day level to help prevent that from happening. Absolutely. But even if the odds did happen and something God forbid, happened to someone, you know, they would say, well, I did my best. I did everything I could. And, yep. you know, wouldn't, you wouldn't go back and say, oh, I should have done this or I should have taken care of more, yeah. you know, more yeah. of my health. Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to, you know, try to look at everything and see what you can do for yourself. So any last thoughts you'd like to share with our audience today? We've really covered a wide range. Um, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us and, and, and what you're doing and kind of how you see patients. It's awesome to hear. Uh, Absolutely. Um, You know, health, your health should be a priority because it impacts your relationships. It impacts your work. It impacts your goals and your future. And making that a priority, being able to address this priority in America, you know, is a luxury that many people in other countries don't have. We are living in a safe environment and there is a lot of things um, that are put in place that we can use to help us, you know, make our yeah. life better. But then we, we need to go back to the question of, you know, is health really my health? Is my health really my priority? And right. what am I doing about it? Yeah. Um, and so allocating, you know, your spending and thinking about that and how far you go with that and advocating for your health. That's part of making healthier a priority and advocating for that is by, you know, maybe spending a little bit more on on good groceries and produce that are, you know, local or organic, whatever, you know, however, Mm -hmm. which side you're on. I I advocate for local more than organic Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and, and, you know, and fresh versus, you know, if you want to spend more on partying and drinking. So it's a balancing act. Absolutely. I'm so grateful to be on this show and thank you so much for inviting me to speak. I really appreciate it. And it was a true pleasure talking about all these things. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're so open with your honesty. Um, You're such an authentic person. So we really appreciate it. And thank you, our listeners. Thank you for listening today with Hiba Jamil. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can get more information uh, from and about us at our website, centerforhealingneurology.com. Please be sure to share this show with your friends. We welcome your rating and reviews wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to send topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together, and we're committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org.